There are millions of people in our world today who think of Jesus as someone who belongs to history. Perhaps like Caesar or Washington or Napoleon. They think of Jesus as someone who lived on this earth a long time ago and passed away. A great man he was, to be sure, but nothing more. Some may look upon his life as an affecting sacrifice. Some may look upon his life as even a great inspiration. And they may even look upon Jesus as a wise teacher. Sadly, beyond those things, for so many millions of people, Jesus is not really significant. Then there are others. Those who have an inner contempt for the mild and suffering Jesus that's so often pictured. I have found it a curious thing that the authors or the artists over the years who have chosen to paint Jesus' picture. As they've used their brushes, they have largely portrayed His gentleness, His meekness, and His compassion. But in so doing, and in portraying His meekness and His gentleness and His compassion, they've often neglected the other equally true side of the personality of Jesus. His strength. His tireless energy. His uncompromising will. But you see, sometimes I think this one-sided picture of this meek and long-suffering Jesus, I think that's sometimes what folks want to say. I think that more nearly suits our day and our time with its broad-mindedness. It suits the inclusiveness and political correctness of our time in history. It suits our day and age with its easygoing compromises. This era that we live in with a scorn of hell and even often a denial of the reality of sin. A time when people really don't want to call sin what it is. Because sin is such an ugly word. And yet... Having read the Bible, can you really see the Jesus who healed the sick and raised the dead and made the lame to walk and the blind to see? Can you really see the Christ of the Gospels coming to America of 2019 and saying, well, yes, folks. I think same-sex marriage is just absolutely okay. Do you see Jesus saying, well, you know, I think that if someone wants to have gender reassignment surgery, that's their personal choice. Or can you see Jesus saying that you have the right to kill an unborn child if that's what you want to do? 
I think Jesus, the Jesus I know, would have some very harsh words for those liberal politicians who just this last week blocked a law requiring medical treatment for babies that survive an abortion. I don't see the Jesus that I serve approving of laws permitting the murder of infants in America. You see, I, I see Jesus condemning a great deal of American life today. I think that Ruth Graham had a great point many years ago before her death. When Ruth Graham said if God doesn't bring judgment on America, He should apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I think Mrs. Graham maybe had a point there. I see Jesus condemning a lot of what's done in our day and time even in the name of religion. You see, what we need to do We need to turn away from our preconceived ideas about Jesus. We need to turn to the New Testament. And we need to see Jesus for ourselves. We need to see Jesus as Jesus really is. And when we see Jesus as He really is, we're going to see both sides of His personality. We're going to see His gentleness. His kindness, His love, and His meekness. But we're also going to see His strength, and His courage, and His uncompromising will. There's a beautiful word picture painted of Jesus for us in the Gospel according to John. It's in John chapter 2. It's a wonderful, dramatic scene It's in the temple in Jerusalem. It's near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It's His very first appearance in front of His nation as the Messiah. He's just turned water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And with the disciples, He's gone to Capernaum for a short time. And now we see Jesus as He's gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. The scene that day is one you could not forget. I want you to think about it. And I want you to buy an eye of faith this morning. I want you to see it. I want you to see Jesus Christ walking through the massive colonnade of the temple. A great marble forest of Corinthian pillars. It's early in the morning. But the temple has already become a bedlam of activity and noise and confusion. There are tables there for the money changers are. There are tables there with cages of doves and there are stalls of cattle and people are crowding around chatting with their friends or maybe they're going to one of the sellers of doves and selecting a dove to purchase for a sacrifice. They're taking their money from other lands and going to the tables of the money changers and having their money from other countries changed into the sacred half shekel of the sanctuary. They've got to have those that half shekel for the sanctuary. They can't use their money from Tyre or Egypt or or Greece. It's got to be the half shekel. And 
buying sacrifices on the spot like the doves or the cattle. It's much more convenient than bringing the sacrifices from a distance. So it's convenient for everybody. It's profitable for a great many people. And so this temple huckstering has become a recognized institution. And yet you're in the temple of God. And shrill voices are bargaining and some are even swearing angrily and some are bickering over prices. And you can hear the metallic tinkle of the coins as they drop into the money boxes on the tables. Here you are, right outside the holy place. And all the signs of greed are seen and heard. There's no serenity there. There's no peace there. No one can pray. And then suddenly, as you read the story, there's a lull in the confusion. So if you're sitting there startled by the quiet, you look up and you see a strange, yet hauntingly familiar figure standing there. There's Jesus. He's standing between two gigantic stone columns of the temple and His eyes are burning with intensity. And His face is magnificent in His wrath. Poor peasants are being bled in the name of God. And Jesus steps forth with a resolution and a firmness. Born of the conviction that illuminates His face. And there is in His eyes a gaze and a stare and a look that men break away from. His lips are drawn into a thin line. And He stoops down. And He picks up some binding cords that the merchants have discarded. And deftly, He knots those cords into a whip. And there's something in His attitude. And there's something in His eyes. And there's something in His face. Something in that ominous silence that Jesus stands watching. And there's something about Jesus that makes men look at Him with an uneasy look in their eyes. And then, you see the full fury of the wrath of Jesus come forth. In just a few long strides, He's across the temple court. He picks up the boxes filled with money and He scornfully and He deliberately just empties them out on the floor. The coins spill with a clatter. They go rolling in a hundred different directions and the tables go crashing down and the money changers rush to gather up their coins from the filth on that stone floor because their greed is made even more frantic as they grovel in the dirt and they pounce on their money and they scream in protest as this man with the whip in his hand stands over them. And then what do we see? You read the story, you see Jesus driving out the frightened cattle and the muscles in His arms stand out like cords. Lights dart out of His eyes and guess what? Not a word is heard in protest. Not a single hand was raised against Him. The temple guards just stood and watched helplessly. Because 
the magnificent figure of Jesus Christ dominates that entire scene. And His voice rings out. It echoes on the stone floor and among the stone pillars and it sounds like the voice of doom. It sounds as if it's the voice of God Himself. And it is. He says, it is written. My house shall be called the house of prayer. But you've made it a den of thieves. Do you know this man? He is a man whose impact on those who met him and those who listened to him was more like dynamite than it was dew. There was something disturbing about the march of this Galilean through the land. Everywhere Jesus went, there was anything but peace. Debates and arguments buzzed around Jesus. And if men did not come to Jesus with questions, Jesus challenged them with questions of His own. Jesus made men and women wonder about themselves. Jesus made people look into their hearts and see things they hadn't seen before. Jesus caused folks to ponder about life and what it meant. Quite honestly, I often feel there's confusion about Jesus. To a lot of folks, He's just a dim, shadowy figure. Almost a stranger. There are a lot of folks that have heard echoes of the person of Jesus. They've heard rumors of His movements in the hearts and lives of those around them. And yet those same folks in their own life, they've missed Jesus. They've missed Him over and over again. Some folks have missed Him and have grown so weary in their search that they've actually questioned in their heart the very existence of Jesus. You see, they've never really met Him. They've never really known Him. Let me tell you about Him just a little bit this morning. Where did He come from? His home was a little obscure village in an occupied Roman province. He was poor. He was born to poor working people in a stable where animals were kept. And the only records we have about Jesus, the Gospels, are silent about the greater part of His life. There are hints that after Joseph's death, he took over the family carpenter shop and ran it. His formal education was in the local synagogue school, but that stopped when he was twelve. Jesus left no writings. He spoke Aramaic, traditional Hebrew, and a smattering probably of Greek and Latin. You see, Jesus lived in a world that was trilingual. Not once in his life did he ever travel more than a hundred miles from home. There was a day that came that Jesus began his public ministry, or 
as we would say in East Texas, that Jesus took to preaching. His family, like of other, like a lot of other young men's families when they do that, his family thought he was mad. They tried to talk him out of it. But he did it. His friends were mostly poor like he was. They were fishermen and peasants. This is what I want you to see. I want you to see Jesus not mingling with the elite and the creme de la creme of society. I want you to see Jesus mingling with the forgotten men and women of this world. I want you to see Jesus mingling with ordinary folks. Folks like me and you. I want you to see Jesus talking with the outcasts of society. Jesus knew no social barriers. And Jesus cared nothing for money and He cared nothing for material things. Jesus actually socialized with publicans and sinners until many of the good people of His day, the good people, were scandalized by Jesus' behavior. Oh, but He attracted great crowds. He walked among the sick. He touched a blind eye here and a palsied limb there and He healed a running sore or a crippled leg. And even the enemies of Jesus were later to admit the miracles that He performed. John calls them signs. But what finally, the day came, the crowds melted away. Because you see, Jesus' way was just too hard for some folks. There were a lot of folks that weren't ready to accept Jesus' hard way of love. And the sands of the hourglass ran out. His three-year ministry came to a close at one point. Jesus was even afraid that His own followers, His closest, the twelve, would melt away. In the end, they did flee in fear, most of them, because they cared more for their own safety than they did for Jesus. He died a criminal's death, reviled and mocked. He was tormented, laughed at and scorned, hanging between two thieves. And they buried Him in a borrowed grave. But praise God, that, folks, is not the end of the story. Suddenly, His disciples the same men who had run away, came back boldly into the streets of the city that had crucified Jesus. And they came back and they proclaimed, He's not dead at all. He's alive. The body with the marks and the spikes and the nails had disappeared. And whatever anybody else in Jerusalem thought, it was obvious 
that the disciples of Jesus were convinced beyond any doubt that their Master, their Lord, was still alive. Because they were different. They weren't the same timid, cowering men that they had been. They weren't afraid anymore. They spoke boldly. And the threats of the authorities didn't intimidate them. And they were saying some fantastic things. They were saying that the living God had once and for all in the brief life on earth given a full and final revelation of Himself in Jesus Christ. They were saying that in Jesus, God had come. And they said that within three days of His death, the body had become alive. He had walked out of the grave and appeared to many human witnesses. He had appeared even to them. Now, as you can imagine, such a message was laughed at. But, this Jesus began to be talked about too much. And Rome tried to stop the spread of this movement by threats and by force. And you know what happened? Their threats, they only made the disciples of Jesus more eloquent. It made them more bold. They got thrown into prison. And they turned the cell into a pulpit. Stones were thrown at them. And having been stoned, they rose from the dust, bleeding and bruised, with a more convincing testimony of Jesus Christ. Lashed with whips, they just kept praising God. Rome could not stop Jesus. The grandeur of Rome toppled and fell and was relegated to the history books. And Jesus still lives. And changed lives, even today, give testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. Because it's to Jesus that credit belongs for the newness of life and the victories that men and women have achieved. It's the power of Jesus that saves and forgets and forgives. You know what we have to admit? A lot of man's great ideas and schemes have failed. Many have thought that the new heaven and the new earth would come through materialism. That the accumulation of more and more and more toys in our big boy and big girl toy boxes would make our lives fulfilled. Two cars in every garage, a plasma screen TV in every room, and all kinds of other things I could list. But somehow, our toys just haven't brought about the level of satisfaction and peace that we thought they would. Secularism has not made life happier, nor has it made life easier. Every day, watching the news reports, we're aware that our civilization has a sickness of heart. Old standards of morality and decency, right and wrong, and even simple, just simple good manners 
don't even exist in our society. You know, if Jesus taught anything, He said, whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. At least, He taught good manners. You don't have to believe in Jesus to be nice to people. But all those things are going away in our society. And now we've got a society that's taking things like same-sex marriage and the legalization of drug use and the killing of babies and cramming it down our throat in the name of progress and tolerance. And it's even more evident when our art ends in surrealism and our music ends in discord and literature ends in the airing of sexual license and sexual deviation and science ends with the power to destroy civilization. Write this down. It's on the final exam. This type of life, no matter how it might be packaged, can never satisfy the soul, nor can it ever satisfy the hunger of the human heart. Whatever else people do in this life, people cannot remain neutral about Jesus. You've either got to be for Him or against Him. Few people have ever recruited disciples on such hard-hitting terms as Jesus did. Jesus warned his, those that followed Him. He said, following me might divide families and it might alienate friends. He said, following me is going to mean a shift in values. It's going to be a turning away from materialism and secularism. And He said, following me is going to involve sacrifice. Because when we follow Jesus, we can't put self first anymore. And when we think about all those things that Jesus said, let's don't be delusional that that was just for first century Christians. You know, I think if Jesus Christ appeared today on the square in Center, Texas, wearing a business suit, or maybe if He came to Center, He'd be wearing some jeans and a pair of boots. But if Jesus came to Center today, would we react to Him any differently than the people of Jerusalem did so many, many years ago? Right now, we're in a period when church membership is still socially acceptable. For the moment, for this moment, our nation does still give lip service to Judeo-Christian values. And it's not hard for Jesus as long as He stays safely tucked in the pages of the New Testament. But understand this. Materialism and secularism are on the increase. Anti-Christian voices are gaining a larger and larger hearing in our society, in our nation today. And as these things accelerate, our civilization may, in our lifetime, 
go full circle. Because we see in our nation today, in many ways, a new conspiracy against God and religion, a modern version, a more subtle version. But friends, it's persecution nonetheless. There are some sitting in this building right now that might be young enough to see a day that Christianity would have to go underground again. Look at what Jesus offers you. Jesus offers His friendship, the most wonderful friendship in the world. He offers His strength for our weakness. He offers His comfort for our sorrow. He offers His light for our darkness. He offers His guidance for our way. He offers forgiveness for our sins. But He offers it on His terms through obedience to His will. As we believe in Him, we confess His name, we repent of sins, and those sins are washed away coming in contact with the blood of Christ through the waters of baptism. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Is Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life today? If Jesus is not Lord and Master of all of your life this morning, then Jesus is not Lord and Master at all in your life. If you need to make changes for Jesus to be the Lord and Master of your life this morning, this is the opportunity to do that as we stand and while we sing.